I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. We're outdoors with Henry David Thoreau this hour, walking his woods, canoeing his waters in his 200th birthday week. We embark on the lazy hometown river where Thoreau's first great book got underway alongside his brother John in the summer of 1839. I had often stood on the banks of the Concord, watching the lapse of the current, an emblem of all progress, following the same law with the system, with time, and all that is made. The weeds at the bottom gently bending down the stream, shaken by the watery wind, still planted where their seeds had sunk. And at last I resolved to launch myself on its bosom and float whither it would bear me. What does the transcendentalist do? We were asking in the first of our three Bicentennial Thoreau shows. All the answers are to be found in the canoe trip that became a masterpiece titled A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers. What the transcendentalist does is soar between water below and sky above, between this day and eternity, between nature and human society, between Thoreau's Christian neighbors and his own Buddhist universalist preferences, between himself and the great Emerson, the patron that Thoreau is trying hard here to impress. We're at the Southbridge Boathouse, near Thoreau's house on Main Street in Concord, just upstream from the Concord River itself. How many people have never been canoeing? Nice. Awesome. Good, all right. That makes my life easy. Alex Strong from Maine is one of our guides, a naturalist philosopher in the Thoreau lineage. This is the start of the Concord here. So we're, we've come in on the Sudbury, and to our left is the Assabet River, which is pretty close to where Thoreau would have started. On a Saturday morning in summer 2017, family fishermen are out ahead of us. For Thoreau, he thought fishing is one of the one of the highest ways to understand nature. One of the interesting thing he, things he talks about in the book is that in in our modern time, that every previous age is still around, and talks as the fisherman as someone who is still connected to the world before the agrarian revolution. And for Thoreau, there's a wisdom in that that the fisherman has that he's trying to capture. He speaks of himself often as a fisherman as well. Didn't Thoreau think of himself as a sort of man beyond the ages, of many ages? He thinks of himself mostly as a man not of his current age. I think part of all of the trips he took was to figure out a way to live in a, a time that he didn't understand and didn't feel comfortable in to find the way of life that connected with him. As we paddle, I'm asking the University of Massachusetts philosopher John Cagg, who's in his own canoe, about Thoreau's fancy as a wannabe fish that he is amphibious, the equal as a swimmer of the perch and the bream and the stately pickerel alert to every minnow, free to stroke or hold a fish with fellow feeling. What doesn't he know about these devils? He knew more about fish than most of us know about ourselves and about each other. (laughs) That's probably true. History is layered out here. Suddenly we're canoeing under Concord's historic bridge 
next to the Minutemen's first fight with the British Redcoats in 1775, and I can actually remember Emerson's poem about it. In 1835, young Henry Thoreau was in the high school choir that first performed the classic Concord Hymn. It goes like this. By the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flags to the April breeze unfurled. Here the embattled farmers stood and fired the shot heard round the world. This is the rude bridge. I think it's been rebuilt a few times since then. But. So he goes, he goes up the river with John in 1839, and it's 10 years until that book is published. He does a lot of living during that time. But then um, in 1841, a sort of freak accident occurs. John nicks himself with a razor, contracts tetanus, dies of gangrene in Henry's arms. So the river takes on a slightly different meaning after that. Navigating the river for Thoreau is also to navigate the sort of tumultuous tragedies of human life. And his first book, his week on the rivers, instead of an adventure, it's become a sort of elegy. And in elegiac fashion, it does not name the man it's mourning. He doesn't say John. They were... Young men, Thoreau, I believe, is about a year out of college, 22, and they want to explore, they want to, they want to learn from doing. And so they build a boat and set off on the river. If you think about being 22 and wanting to see if you can steer your own boat, literally and figuratively, you have to think about Emerson's self-reliance the trip is really about self-reliance in an important sense. Self-reliance, in this case, began with the brothers building their own wooden boat, a creature of two elements, Thoreau wrote, fish below the waterline, bird above, and painted in two colors, green for the water, blue for the sky. Water and land, earth and sky, good and evil. And he's trying to get us to think beyond those divides. And here it is possible to, uh, there's another one. Here it is possible to understand that land and water are one. When you have trees popping right out of not ground, but water. Thoreau, in describing his boat, says that of a true boat, that it must learn from the water and from the air. The part of the boat under the water, the hull, is the fish. So where a fish has fins is where you would put your paddles, where you would put your dagger board. Where the tail of the fish is is where the rudder should go. And from the birds we learn where our sail should be, what the top of the boat should look like. And I think what Thoreau is getting at is that the boat is not of the water or of the air, it's of both it was connected to everything. Alex, John, how do we describe this? I mean, it looks like heaven. Glassy water, utterly beautiful greens of every imaginable shade, trees hanging benignly. It looks like this is the forest primeval or the river primeval. The calm water is reflecting what we're seeing above 
reminds me of what Thoreau was saying on the second day of the trip where he had calm water like this and when he would watch a bird fly by, you could identify it as easily from the water as from the air. You know, there's a famous moment when Emerson on his walks comes home and writes, I will be a naturalist, which I think means I will catch up with young Henry. This was naturalism before environmentalism. Did he think this world was endangered? Absolutely. One, the Industrial Revolution pounding down Thoreau's door. I mean, Lowell is exactly 11 miles away from here. The dams that dammed this river were built by the industrialists. And there was this um, very large fight in the 1850s that Thoreau was part of between the industrialists who dammed the river and then let the river go. But when they let the river go, it flooded all the way down to Sudbury and flooded the farmers out of their livelihood. They lost that fight. (laughs) The industrialists won. But I think an even greater threat was the idea that nature was no longer sacred. And oddly enough, modern science was another threat for Thoreau, even despite the fact that he was up on all of the most modern science of his day. The reduction of nature to its parts, the sacred had been sort of washed away. It's as they're paddling up the Merrimack, he mentions that the infinite is found in the small changes. And I think that is a very transcendentalist idea, is that we find the infinite in the small details. So Thoreau was protecting nature, but he was learning about big end nature when he was studying the perch, studying when flowers bloomed, where the bees were. So the notes he took, the meticulous notes, weren't just about those little details, it's about understanding the whole picture and keeping nature sacred while understanding it in all its finite, mundane details. He was a noticer, obviously. He noticed the barely noticeable. What does that mean? There are these moments of experience, like the one we're having right now, actually. I mean, we're floating on this river, the same river Thoreau floated down. And it really is a sort of magical moment. And I think Thoreau wanted us to remember that there could still be magical moments. What's weird is that you can get that right here, which is very cool, which is very nice. We're seeing hawks at a great height. We're hearing birds right over our heads. We saw some mallards earlier and some wood ducks. There's some swallows over in the meadow. A morning dove. That's the cooing that you hear over there. There's a quiet to the river, even with the noise of all the birds surrounding us. And one of the things Thoreau does is often when he's talking about the Concord, he switches to other rivers and he lists rivers around the world. And the Concord he calls his Little Nile. The river becomes a a literary tool for him to get to this more universal connection. And I think as a a man missing his brother that there's a comfort in that. Thoreau closed his account of that brotherly trip with a leap of the heart. We had made about 50 miles this day with sail and oar, and now, far in the evening, 
our boat was grating against the bulrushes of its native port, and we leapt gladly on shore, drawing it up and fastening it to the wild apple tree, whose stem still bore the mark which its chain had worn in the chafing of the spring freshets. The actor Ben Evett is our voice of Thoreau. Coming up, the still cold, deep Walden Pond and the hut where Thoreau, at 28, began to confront the wilderness all around and deep inside him, both. This is Open Source. We are standing by Stillwater Walden, a pond in Concord, Massachusetts, where Henry Thoreau wrote his great book, in a cabin by the shore. It became a manual of American naturalism and individualism and wisdom like this, for example. If you have built castles in the air, as Thoreau put it, that is where they should be. Now put the foundations under them. In 1845, Walden was a woodlot next to the new railway where the 28-year-old poet went to suck out the marrow of life, whatever it turned out to be. Every morning was a cheerful invitation to make my life of equal simplicity, and I may say innocence, with nature herself. I have been as sincere a worshiper of Aurora as the Greeks. I got up early and bathed in the pond. That was a religious exercise and one of the best things which I did. Renew thyself completely each day. Do it again and again and forever again. Our guide to the pond and the book, the young philosopher John Cagg, had been in and out of the Walden water the other morning before we got there. So um, when I was here this morning, I arrived at probably 8.30. There were two osprey over the pond. And you could tell that they were osprey because when they came over you, there is this sort of shimmering whiteness, but it's not just their color. Mm. It's right off the reflection of the pond. So when you look down into the pond, I mean, you honestly see the blue and the white and the green, the black, but you really see the heavens. It's just unbelievably gorgeous. And when it's still, which is my favorite time to swim, it's so amazing that your arms are the only thing that make a stir on the pond when you are in the water and, and alone. He was born in 1817, and he says, I was born just in the nick of time for the flowering of New England. <laughs> we talk about the Walden moment, 1850s, as you know, the American Renaissance, and it really is. Moby Dick, Emerson's essays, self-reliance, his nature essays, Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, it all explodes somewhere in the vicinity, spiritually and geographically, of this pond. Do you want to make a claim for the, the headwaters of American thinking right here? Yeah, there is that. Yeah, I mean, you can make that claim. I think it's a pretty safe claim. I mean, honestly, I can run in a course of 15 minutes between Emerson's house, the old manse, 
yeah. Hawthorns, Bronson Alcott, Thoreau. Yep. It's just all here. The way that this moment has like, you know, a rock and a pond thrown, it just ripples out and it goes a long way. American philosophy of William James. And then Frost, 150 years later, is still speaking of this, about the wild What is about Walden? This is America. So Frost says, in 1964, Walden is one of three great American classics. And many people in the 20th century, many great authors, men and women, think about Walden in that way. What's remarkable about Walden is it's an account of a writer and an account of a thinker living in a place over a stretch of time. And what you get to see is both life and thought come together in a very intimate way. You quote him, maybe at this spot, saying, who am I at present? A diseased bundle of nerves standing between time and eternity like a withered leaf that still hangs shivering on its stem. A more miserable object one could not well imagine. Yeah, that's right. It sounds a little melodramatic, but it's really a nice description of who we are. That's how he felt <laughs> when he was here. So uh, he came here on the 4th of July in 1845, and he came to write two books. First, A Week on the Concord and Merrimack River, which turned out to be an elegy. In 1841, his brother had died in his arms of gangrene. And so he came here to both mourn, but also to figure out his life. Mm. A bundle of nerves between mm. time and eternity. And I think that American philosophy and Thoreau's philosophy is really trying to figure out why this bundle of nerves that seems so ephemeral, fragile, insignificant, why the short life that it has isn't a complete mm. waste of time. And Thoreau's really trying to figure that out. Here. Sketch this young man. We've been on the Concord River with him. This is the Stillwater Thoreau. He's the child of a moderately prosperous family that's going to come into a pencil fortune, sort of. But he's a little lost. What's on his mind when he speaks of his troubles, when he speaks of a, we'd call a depression? What's bugging him? He's a very bright young man. He wants to be a writer. He wants to be a poet, desperately. He has more than his share of what Emerson calls skepsis, hmm. self-doubt. Skeptitude. That's right. He's really struggling. He says he comes to the woods to live deliberately, to get to the marrow of life so that when he comes to the end of life, he doesn't discover that he hasn't lived. Hmm. And I think that's the scariest part of death. It's not the dying part. It's the not living part in the interim. And I think Thoreau is really concerned about that fact, that very basic human fact, our time moves so quickly and how do we make it worthwhile? If you think about what's happening right after John, his brother, dies, Emerson loses his son, who was very dear to Thoreau as well, a very young son. Death is completely indiscriminate. It's mortality, zones in on us, 
very unexpectedly. This pond itself is smaller than you expect, smaller than its reputation in a way, and he knew it precisely. He, as you say, he tried to measure the depth of it, but he also, he knew the fish, he knew the year of the pond. Speak of the pond to him. He experienced the pond in ways that most people don't experience this pond today. So he saw the seasons in a way that most people are not willing to see the seasons in a pond or feel the seasons in a pond. So he would go in when it was absolutely freezing. He would crack the ice, watch the ice, consider the crystals in the ice. The changes of the seasons were really important to throw. And he wasn't afraid to sort of get in when it was very uncomfortable. We're looking at the shore, the far shore, and this is actually where many ex-slaves from the Revolution, before the Civil War, this is Walden Woods that we're looking at back here, and this is where Thoreau also had his shanty or had his cabin. Thoreau was actually neighbors with the Irish who were building the railroad at this time. Right. And uh, the Irish and the ex-slaves populated Walden Woods. They were outcasts. And Thoreau came to know these outcasts just the same way that he came to know the beings that lived on the margins of society between the woods and civilization. Is this Thoreau's...? This is Thoreau's cove right here. So this is where he would fish, on the other side of the cove. It's about 68 degrees right now in the water. It's brisk, but nice. And there's this, if you'll notice, it's green-bottomed. Or rather, it, it appears green, but it's granite. And there's virtually no algae, hmm. which is unique and, and quite beautiful. As I walk along the stony shore of the pond in my shirt sleeves, though it is cool as well as cloudy and windy, and I see nothing special to attract me, all the elements are unusually congenial to me. The bullfrogs trump to usher in the night, and the note of the whippoorwill is borne on the rippling wind from over the water. Sympathy with the fluttering alder and poplar leaves almost takes away my breath. Yet, like the lake, my serenity is rippled, but not ruffled. These small waves raised by the evening wind are as remote from storm as the smooth reflecting surface. Robert Frost gave a really beautiful commemoration of Thoreau. He was quite old. It was at Dunbarton Oaks, six months before Frost's death. And Frost took a piece of his poem, Birches, and he said, when I am weary of considerations and the world is too much with me, I want to go to the woods. Mm. And he reminds his listeners, he says, and this is breaking from Birch's, he says, do you know that the woods means mad? You know, I want to go mad in the woods. I want to go wild in the woods. Mm. And I think this is what Thoreau wanted as well. Frost knew this about Thoreau, I think. He said, I want to be bewildered. And I think that's what Thoreau is wanting coming out here 
and also many of the what we would consider to be zany things that Thoreau did. So for example, trying to catch alewife with his hands or stroking alewife, these small fish, getting down on his hands and knees and trying to listen to the insects, mm. touching the trees, hugging the trees, literally hugging the trees, putting mm. his arms around them. Conventional society in Concord does not look happily on this type of behavior. So the he, bewilderedness, the, I'm just thinking. The bewildered, they are not a bewildered type of people. You need to get out of Concord Center to become a little bewildered. <laughs> you know, there's this question, did he say wildness, did he say wilderness? Maybe he just should have said bewilderedness is what we're after. It's beautiful, right? I mean, he, he, Frost goes on, he says, I want to get lost. I haven't even been lost. I mean, like, what does it mean to lose yourself? I talk to my students a lot, and I say, where do you find yourself? And they say, music, or they say, out in nature. Or, and then I say, where do you lose yourself? And it's the same answer, music, nature. <laughs> like, this is what Thoreau was onto, I think. John, I'd love you to speak here on the shore of Walden Pond of some of the philosophical substance almost that's taking form here. The waking sleep thing is all through his work in Walden and elsewhere, but the whole idea is wake up. At some point he says, can anybody imagine meeting somebody who's completely awake? And he sort of almost says it would be like meeting God, and which is forbidden. You couldn't stand it. But he also laments that most people, besides their lives of quiet desperation, are asleep just profoundly asleep. I mean, in um, Emerson, he takes the old, the ancient mandate to know thyself mm. and to know nature as being one, one and the same. And for Thoreau, I see Thoreau at the end of Walden saying, keep your eyes open, keep your eyes open. The dawn will come. You just have to have eyes for it. The saddest part about life is if we don't have eyes for the dawn. And when he says the dawn, he means just the first faintest glimpse of light. Just the smallest, smallest sense. And I think that's what he's also looking for in us. Just what do you see in yourself? What do you see in others? Is there light there also? I think, I mean, in part, what needs to be sort of remembered is we try to make so much of Thoreau, like, what is he thinking, and what's the symbolism, and what's the meaning, and what's the philosophy, and what's the... But really, it's just the feeling of water. Like, it's just... It's so simple. I mean, it's so simple. You just get in. While we're out here, consider those statuesque, very tall, dark green, almost black pine trees all around Walden Pond. Trees that Thoreau came to consider virtually human, like cousins. Richard Higgins, widely traveled in Concord today, has written a book on Thoreau and the language of trees, and he has no doubt that Thoreau spoke it fluently from the heart. Here we are now. Thoreau said that when he was away from Concord and he came back and he stepped into a pine grove, he said, I would return to a pine grove like a hungry man to a crust of bread. And the aroma of the pine is a spiritual elixir he said, that would just awaken my spirits. Here we are in this sort of soggy bottom cathedral of 
pines, mostly white pines, I think, Richard. Yeah, why, why do I feel Henry David Thoreau was here, where we're standing? White pines were, I think, I would say, his tree above all other trees. They were tall. They were erect. They were noble. They had a wildness about them. The white pine is the ultimate uncultivated tree. It grows where it wants to grow. It's very persistent and hardy. It's majestic. It's erect. It stands up to all kinds of abuse. Remind people, everybody knows a white pine. They, they are ship masts. That's they right. built the houses of this country. And they're very distinctive in that sort of asymmetrical, vaguely Japanese-looking uh, layers of branches. Right. Why do I say Japanese? Well, Japanese because they look like pagodas. Their arms, what is interesting about white pines is that if you look up, their branches are more lateral, that is to say more horizontal than many other trees. So Thoreau thought that they stood somewhat like a man with his arms out. And, well, he said, nothing in this world stands up more free from blame than a pine tree. Mm. Tell it, Henry. Wow. Yeah, you know, Thoreau looks at a pine grove and he says, I experienced a transient gladness as if the trees recognized me. It was like I got a sign from the pine. He said, that's what I got out of being in the forest today. He felt a real kinship, connection to the pine tree. And he also thought that pines had a certain human quality, that a stand of pines on the horizon might seem to be standing there like a family, sheltering and protecting each other. He makes people out of trees, does he not? Absolutely. He sees many human qualities in trees. And it's actually, he tries, I think, to use trees to ennoble people, to be more like trees. He praises their patience, their rootedness, their generosity, giving of themselves to animals, so giving their wood and branches to, to people, uh, that they soak up water, keep the soil in place. They're actually good citizens, noble citizens. They do more for you know, the land that they're on than most people do. As we stand by the monument of the battleground, I see a white pine dimly in the horizon, just north of Lee's Hill. That tree seems the emblem of my life. It stands for the West, the wild. The sight of it is as grateful to me as to a bird whose perch it is to be at the end of a weary flight. I'm not sure whether the music I hear is most in the robin's song or in its boughs. My wealth should be all in pine shillings. Coming up, Thoreau, the legendary walker in the made woods and deep into his own interior. This is Open Source. Toward the end of his life, in his early 40s, whenever Henry David Thoreau was asked to give a talk, he often spoke a version of his evergreen essay called Walking. 
the art of walking, and the spirit of walking. Real walkers are born, not made, Thoreau liked to say. If you are ready to leave father and mother and brother and sister and wife and child and friends and never see them again, if you have paid your debts and made your will and settled all your affairs and are a free man, he wrote, then you are ready for a walk. These days, the woods and the bookstores are full of such walkers. Andrew Forsthoffel made his reputation in public radio walking 4,000 miles from Philadelphia to San Francisco with a sign that said, Walking to Listen and then recording backroad stories. The first moment that comes to mind is, it was a night in Georgia, totally unremarkable on the surface. I was spending the night in the barn of a family who gave me permission to stay there. Didn't really want to hang out with me, but they said, yeah, you can stay in the barn. And I had walked maybe 20 miles that day, and by the time I finished walking, it was pitch dark. And I was hidden by this little barn in the straw, and... Every once in a while, the headlights of a car would sort of shine by, and I had bananas for dinner, and it was just simple, and it was enough. That was the remarkable thing, is for once, (laughs) I didn't need anything more or else. I didn't need to be anywhere else. I didn't need to have anything more. I didn't need to be someone else, you know? There was no FOMO, fear of missing out, because I was totally there, (laughs) and it was just peace, just like a tranquility, an enoughness, and peace came with that. And then the next morning, it was gone, you know, and I, <laughs> I had to do it all over again, you know. So it's, it's a cycle, I think. It's remembering and forgetting and then remembering and forgetting again. And then there is the literary traveler Paul Theroux of Cape Cod and Hawaii, of the Mosquito Coast and the Great Railway Bazaar. Paul Theroux has spent a lifetime on trains and in kayaks and a lot on his own two feet in places like China, our own deep south, and especially Africa. In conversation this week, Paul Theroux extended the idea in Thoreau's essay that walking is inborn into some of us more than others. Walking should be read by everyone who can read. It should be taught in schools. It's a gospel of the environment. It's a gospel of of wildness. It's almost mystical, and in places actually mystical, speaking of the virtue of wildness, and even the virtues of a peculiar kind of ignorance. When Thoreau says, I believe in the forest and in the meadow and in the night in which the corn grows, he's in a way paraphrasing a poem, and he's using the language of religion to speak about wildness. Think how prescient he is when he's saying, in wildness is the preservation of the world. In wildness is the preservation of the world. People are saying that now. He was writing that 150 years ago. Speak of this species of walkers. He says, they're born, not made. They are the free men, ready to leave everything, take a walk, nowhere, just walk. He's talking about The Rousseauian, I mean, Rousseau wrote a book called Meditations of a Solitary Walker. Bruce Chatwin, who was the apostle of walking, and Werner Herzog, same thing, Wordsworth, all seem to indicate that it's in man's nature, it's in people's nature to be walkers, that we began as nomads, we sprang out of Africa, we walked to our place in the world and found our place in the world, and it was walking that created the world that we know, people humans as walkers. I mean, he says they're they're made, not born, but actually it's in our nature to ramble, to look, to walk. 
in a way, it's sort of against nature to just be sitting around. He talks about true vagrancy is sitting in your house. Uh, he says in the essay, the true vagrant is the person who stays home. Isn't it strange, Paul? He's also the most famous stay-at-home in literature. I mean, Emerson went all over the world, Europe especially, but Thoreau thought the world was in Concord, Massachusetts. That's true, but like a lot of conceits uh, that Thoreau had, he turned that into a virtue, and he said, uh, there's a poem where he says, uh, I don't really have to go to Venice or the Golden Horn because I have that here in Concord, that the river is like the Golden Horn and the landscape around here is as wild as anything. He says in the essay, two or three hours walking will carry me to as strange a country as I expect ever to see. Imagine that. He's saying, I could walk three hours from Concord and find as strange a country as, as I will ever see. And here's a guy who was totally familiar with the travel literature of, of his time, which included Darwin, Sir Richard Burton, Humboldt, you know, all the great explorers and travelers. And he's saying, I don't need to know that. He even said to Emerson, because Emerson, in his obituary, his eulogy over after he died, after Thoreau died, he said, he had suggested a book by Elisha Kent Kane called Arctic Observations. And Thoreau said, I don't have to read that. Everything that I could find in that book, I could also find in Concord. And Emerson thought, this is amazing, because actually Elisha Kent Kane was looking for the Franklin expedition, and it was an ordeal in the Arctic. But Thoreau said, I don't have to do that. You don't have to go to count the cats in Zanzibar, he says. But at the same time, you know, there's other paradoxes too, because he says, give me the ocean, the desert, or the wilderness, he says, in another place. And he, he extols Burton, the explorer. So here's a guy, as you say, the great stay-at-home, which is true. I mean, his mother was doing his laundry, baking him pies. You know, he's the ultimate sort of cellar dweller <laughs> of his time. He wasn't particularly healthy, but he made a virtue of being in Concord. And you could say also, I mean, he doesn't say so in the essay, but anyone who reads Thoreau knows that when he went for a walk, it wasn't any old walk, that he knew every flower, every weed, every tree, every acorn, every bird, every mammal, everything he saw, he could identify. He does it around Concord. Then when he goes to Maine, he knows the name of every single plant that he sees. Paul Thoreau, I love your introduction to Thoreau's Maine woods collected after his death, but you say in the whole of literature, he's one of the most sensitive and scrupulous notices of nature and man. And you make a good case that he's had his best on those three trips to Maine, among the loggers and the Indians, whom he sees scrupulously but unsentimentally. Speak of that Maine period. It was very important to him to go to Maine to find a real wilderness. He did it when he was living in his cabin on a Walden Pond. And while he was in the cabin, he read Typee by Herman Melville. Hmm. It was the great travel book of its time. It was the Contiki of its time, let's say. Just everyone read Typee. He slightly denigrated it. And you can see he denigrated it because here was Melville, a bit older than he was, but on a whale ship, and then having this flirtation with, with a Marquesan young damsel, Fayaway. And she's naked, she's in the canoe, and she takes off her sarong and they turn it into a sail. So his reaction to that, in my opinion, his reaction to, to the travellers, to Burton, to Melville, to Darwin, 
was to find a place of his own to study and a place that was that was wild. And so he made a deliberate effort not only to go to Maine and study, you know, the fauna and flora, but also to get to know the Aboriginals, the Indians there, the Abenakis. And he writes very sensitively about the Indians in Maine, how they dress, how they think, uh, the names. He writes this whole lexicon of, of words and derivations. He interrogates them. Now, he's not alone on the trip. I mean, a lot of the travelers that he writes about or admires are solitary. He wasn't. He was always with Ellery Channing or, or somebody else. Hmm. In some cases in Maine, it was a man in the logging industry. And there was always an Indian guide, so he wasn't alone. He appears to have climbed Katahdin alone. But I think that, that his trip to Maine was a deliberate effort to find the wildest place that he could. And he even said that there are places in Maine as wild as the Marquesas, as, as Melville's Marquesas. So it's his response to other travelers. It was his adventure. I'd never heard that he was trying to one-up Melville and Burton right here at home, but it sounds right. You underline a thorough passage in Maine where he writes... Nature was here something savage and awful, though beautiful. I looked with awe on the ground I trod on. Here was no man's garden, but the unhandseled globe. It was not lawn, nor pasture, nor mead, nor woodland, nor lee, nor arable, nor wasteland. It was the fresh and natural surface of the planet Earth, and it was made forever and ever. Yeah, and where is he writing that? That was his reaction to being at the top of Mount Katahdin. That's where that tremendous passage, there are a lot of great passages in, it wasn't a book, you know, it, it, was, uh, it was three pieces that he wrote uh, for magazines, and they were lectures that he gave. But that marvelous passage is his response to being in the swirling clouds at the top of Mount Katahdin. And he was one of the earliest climbers of Mount Katahdin. So, and I think he knew that, that he had achieved something. And you must also take into account that he was not a healthy man. He, he was narcoleptic, fell asleep at the moment's notice. He wasn't strong. He was tubercular. Uh, he lived at home. He was not, a, not healthy at, at all. You say about that passage, he's, at some level he's saying, take that, Herman Melville, you and your Marquesas. Yeah, he is saying that. He is saying that. Well, he's not trying to one-up them, but, but he is trying to equal them. He's trying to, to find a wilderness of his own and to chronicle his trip. You often have the impression when he's on a trip, Cape Cod or Walden or, or Maine, that he's alone. He's, the thing is, he's never alone. But he gives the impression in his writing that he's, you know, silent on a peak in Darien, solitary, you know, surveying the ocean, stout Cortez. But here's this guy who's not particularly healthy, very, very widely read, wants to do something, make a physical effort. And walking is that. He's saying, if you don't walk, you're really not alive. You're, you're wasting your time. And also that you need to be wild, that the world needs to be wild. People need to be wild. It's slightly denigrating. He denigrates conventional education. He denigrates commerce. He denigrates urbanization. He denigrates, in a way, he has in common with a lot of, you know, wilderness people, a kind of misanthropy because mm. it's characteristic of the you know, of the, the African explorer and the, uh, I don't know, the great adventurer is that they're misanthropes. They're trying to get away from people and they're trying to find, you know, the old Adam, the paradise that we seem to have lost. Paul, my experience is that the 
magic is still there. On the top of Mount Chikorowa, for example, one of the lesser peaks of the White Mountains, William James's favorite, but it's astonishing to get to the top and to see, not the Earth's curvature, but, you know, an endless sea of green beauty. That's true, but what is the the emotion that you feel when you're at the top of a mountain, when you, you're at the top of Mount Chikoro, Mount Monadnock, lesser peaks, you're alone. You're alone. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a majestic feeling, but the majesty arises from this sense of solitude that you feel alone. My experience of the main coast is kayaking or sailing along the coast in complete emptiness, from one island hopping, going from one island to another. I'm a member of an organization called the Main Island Trail Association, and you just go from island to island camping, and you have an experience of, of utter solitude and, and having to solve the problem of going from one island to another. It's it, great, great empty spaces, as empty as they were when Thoreau was there. You know, a lot of travel is an attempt to recapture the past. It's to recapture the purity of the world as it once was. And this is the, one of the messages of, of Thoreau's walking, because he talks about wildness. And what he's talking about in the essay is it's an earlier period that we're writing about, that we can recapture this sense of who we were as people and what the world looked like before this invasive species of humans began to destroy it. Now, here's a guy who never went further south than Staten Island, never went further west than Minnesota, and, you know, hardly really left Concord. But he has these, the thoughts that, you know, the, the transcendentalism was infused in him by this intense imagination and the effort that he was making. So I think that his message is, you've got to get out, you've got to see it. And also, the world is changing before our eyes, and that in order to see it, as it is, you have to get out and know more. Although this essay is full of allusions to writers, to Plato, to Dante, to Darwin, to Burton, even to a man called Nisiphora Niepce. I don't know whether you saw this allusion, but <laughs> Niepce, he talks about the effects of sunlight on people. But actually, Niepce was the inventor of photography. He wasn't an exact contemporary of Thoreau, but Thoreau must have read him in French. But... At the same time, he's saying, you know, we shouldn't be finding it in books. We shouldn't be looking in books. You've got to find it in yourself, in the spirit that, that rises in you when you leave home and you go out and you're in the trees and in the valleys and in the snow. Thoreau's Latinism is ambulator nascitur non fit. The traveler is born, not made. You've got another one. The great walker, uh, Patrick Lee Fermor, Paddy Lee Fermor, who walked across Europe and wrote about it in two books, was talking to Bruce Chatwin one day, and he said, uh, Chatwin was talking about walking, and Paddy Lee Fermor said, oh yes, solvitor ambulando, it is solved <laughs> by walking. So when you, you've got a problem, you've got something on your mind, go for a walk, and you'll probably figure it out. And I checked, and I, I think it comes from St. Augustine, solvitor ambulando, it's attributed to, to St. Augustine. And I think most walkers will agree that you go, and this is also the solitary walk is so important that you have something on your mind. When you come back from the walk, you've probably figured it out. Paul Theroux's new book is Motherland, a novel about life at home before he went traveling. We announced a contest last week to name a figure who has played something like 
Henry David Thoreau's inspirational role in our lifetimes. And the contest is still open. The writer Kevin Dan got us started on air with his nomination of Philippe Petit, the high-wire walker out of bounds, high over Manhattan, held up by angels between the twin towers of Wall Street back in the 1970s. A faithful listener in Jamaica Plain in Boston, David Vos, phoned in two strong contenders. First off, from Puerto Rico, Carolina, not to be confused with Carolina, a giant who didn't understand the treatment he was getting in America and being black of skin was treated as a Negro when he came to play for Major League Baseball. That's Roberto Clemente. Two balls and two strikes to Roberto Clemente. Here's the pitch on a shot into the gap and left center. And at the height of his powers when he's home in Puerto Rico, New Year's Day, he'd heard about the terrible earthquake in Managua, Nicaragua. So Clemente, being so powerful, got on the radio and beseeched everyone to come to the airport and bring any and everything they could, and for someone, anyone, to give him a plane, and he would fill it, and he himself would go with the pilot and bring it all to our brothers and sisters in Managua, Nicaragua. And they did, and in their haste, they got a faulty plane, and it disappeared right off the coast of Puerto Rico, and that's where he died. And everyone went out to the beach to look for him, and they never found him. But he's still a hero, and he still stirs the imagination of kids in Puerto Rico. And even kids in Pittsburgh, where number 21 is on the sleeves of the Pittsburgh Pirates. So that's one. The second is the great alto saxophone player, who they say played dry as a martini. And boy, was he tired of them saying that. Of course, it was Paul Desmond. And he was itinerant, always demurred never practiced. He said it made him play too fast. A uh, man of the world in the mystic ways of turkey and dervishes with take five that had not one but three time signatures with Dave Brubeck and the Brubeck Quartet touring colleges and forming young minds and being a bachelor, a lifelong bachelor, he left his monies to with royalties from take five to the American Red Cross. So there's some of the competition. Another listener suggested the poet Wendell Berry. David Foster Wallace, anyone? As the all-absorbing, omnidirectional thorough of our culture. E.O. Wilson, perhaps, the ant scientist who thought up sociobiology and then consilience. Send your entry with the old cereal box top to mary at radioopensource.org. Thank you, Paul Theroux. Andrew Forstoffel, Richard Higgins, John Cagg, and Alessandro Strong. Our show this week was produced by Concordians All, Connor Gillies, Zach Goldhammer, Frank Horton, Becca DiGregorio, Susan Coyne, Kevin Doherty, and the transcendental Mary McGrath. Mike Moschetto was our engineer. Special thanks to Ben Ebbett, our voice of Thoreau. I'm Christopher Leiden. Next week, Thoreau's Philosophical Children on Open Source. Mm-hmm.